to the open side. Karim Bete. Lovely here for Simon, who's quick. Pete Simon looking for Karim Bete. Back to Simon. Oh, that is wonderful. That is wild. That is amazing from the Wallabies. Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby, where the people's podcast providing a platform for rugby lovers to come together and support the game that's played in heaven. I'm your host, Ando, and with me is Mitch. And Mitch, it's good to be back. How are you, buddy? Yeah, I'm very excited to have you back, Ando. You've been all on all around the world on holidays with the family to Bali. So uh, I can see you sporting a very nice, somewhat legal, somewhat maybe not so much um, Wallabies jersey. So... Mm-hmm. Look, I purchased it legally, whether or not it was created legally and is an official uh, piece of merchandise. I am sporting a 2019 Wallabies jersey from the Rugby World Cup. It definitely feels like the slightest bit of friction will cause the entire thing to go up in flames. Um, <laughs> but it was an interesting one, actually. I did it as a bit of an experiment, right? Because you know how you go to Bali and there are different parts of Bali that you can go to and they've got the shops with um, knockoffs of different teams, apparel and merchandise. Uh, I went into about four of them specifically looking for union jerseys just as a test just i wasn't inherently going to buy one but i was just like oh yeah let's just see if they have any three shops i went into did not have one at all and in the fourth shop that i went went into had this a crusaders and a chief's jersey um and they were the only three ones that were available so it just shows um some of the pulling power or maybe the place within the market of of rugby yep. and the tourist side of things. And that's for an Australian audience as well, because Bali's for Bogan Aussies. Uh, but yeah, anyway, talking about non-Bogan Aussies, we've got Lockie not here this week, unfortunately. He is up in Darwin at the moment, covering the hottest sevens in the world competition. He was actually doing the commentary and I've got to say, like, I, I give him a bit of crap sometimes, but he's a pretty good commentator, mate. He's pretty good. Yeah, it was very good. I, I tuned in for a bit and I sent him a, a little private message and said, just make sure you get a few more pick and drives mentioned in there and we might have mm. a soundbite for the intro next year. So, uh, But no, he's doing a, a great job. He's spreading the, the rugby gospel up there in the Northern Territory. And from what little bit of rugby sevens action that I was able to catch by tuning in, it's a pretty competitive competition. So um, no doubt he's definitely enjoying his time up there. Looking forward to having him back on next week and getting his thoughts on how the tournament shaped up and and who maybe he might have seen the the next uh, Aussie 7 superstar running around on the field. Yep, he's hoping. Well, what we're going to do, um, we're actually going to be report- recording this episode in two parts. So we're doing a big chunk of it tonight in part one. And what that will involve is Mitch and I going through the main action from the weekend, round five or week five of the Rugby World Cup. And we're going to be focusing specifically on the game's up until Sunday night Aussie time. Then we're going to be recording part two tomorrow night on Monday, and this will be released on Tuesday for you to listen to. And part two will have the matches that occurred on Sunday night or Monday morning. And the reason why we're doing that is because um, I'm starting a new job and I don't have the time to do a full-length pod recording on Monday night, but we still wanted to get everything in for you, so we thought it'd be easiest if we just broke it up across two. Um, So that basically is going to be the run. In a moment, we're going to jump into part one, and we're also going to hold off on our tipping and fantasy updates because we're going to do that in part two because we'll have a fully updated table and everything. So Mitch, are we good to move on, my friend? Should we jump into reviews of the games that have been played so far? Fantastic. Let's uh, let's rip into it. All right, let's go. 
All right, it's time to dive into week five of Rugby World Cup 2023. Now, Andrew, you haven't been with us for the past few weeks. We had you on briefly after the Fiji game, but we just wanted to take a time to get your thoughts on how you found the first five weeks of the tournament. And as an Aussie fan, I guess, how upset you are that the, mm. we're now waiting on a result that we don't have any say in to determine whether we're in or out of this World Cup. Yeah, and by the time everybody listens to this, we'll know whether or not the Aussies are through. And realistically, we don't deserve to be through. Um, so best of luck to Portugal. But yeah, I expect Fiji to deservedly be the runners-up in the pool and to get their match-up against England in the quarterfinal. Um, look, I found this one really hard. Um, I... I personally had come to the end of a job at a pretty stressful period and then went overseas for like two weeks um, and didn't have a huge amount of access um, to watching the games. So with Australia getting essentially knocked out pretty swiftly on, I found it really hard to like personally invest within it. And so there's been a lot of games where there's been tier one teams playing some of the um, tier two or smaller nations or emerging nations um, that I simply I simply haven't caught up on. It'll be the bigger games that I've watched the minis of or, or followed quite closely. Um, and so I guess within that, it's I, I've been a bit disappointed in a way in that Australia seems to be the only major nation that's really screwing up. <laughs> Everybody else is kind of doing um, as as expected within the pools, and I'm very happy for Fiji, even if it is at our. Oh, somewhat. Some of them are such, doing better. Such a great tournament. There's a fair few that are yeah, doing much better than we thought. Better. Yeah, I thought England were going to suck, um, but they're going they're going pretty well, yeah. um, unfortunately. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a bit of a mixed bag in the the, uh, the the teams that I've expected to do well, like your France, your New Zealand, your Ireland, your South Africa. Yeah, they've they've kind of performed um, kind of as expected. Uh, and the teams that I've wanted to suck and fail, such as uh, Wales or England, haven't. And that's really frustrating. <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to the quarterfinals coming up. And there were some excellent games across round five, um, week five, which were just brilliant. So, yeah, can't wait to dive into those. Yeah, I think mirroring those those thoughts, it's been a tricky one for myself even being as an avid rugby fan as I am, like you, Ando. I mean, we do a podcast every week and talk for hours on it about rugby. But the the fact that Australia has been doing so badly at this World Cup has made me less interested, I guess, in the overall tournament in some ways that mm. I was really excited leading into this World Cup to see how the Australia would go, but just how some of the other bigger nations, New Zealand, England, France, Wales, um, Ireland, were going to fare in this World Cup. Now, the time zone is pretty difficult for us. All the games are either 1am or 5am or 3am, somewhere between those slots on a Sunday or even a Monday morning. So it's pretty difficult to get up and be motivated to watch those games at such a difficult time, particularly fitting it in with a work schedule. Now, with Australia also playing pretty horrendously throughout this World Cup, it must be said, it's also yep. made it even less of an incentive, really, to get up and, and want to support it. And I've even found myself like leading into the World Cup and Stan, for their part, has done a fantastic job in the coverage they that have. they've provided. The, the, mini, um, the mini matches, the highlights the even rapid highlights for every match, the sort of midweek shows. They've got a show like three times or four times a week, if not more. The additional podcasts they're putting on, like they're going all out for this and the coverage is fantastic. But as a rugby fan, I found myself sometimes not even wanting to tune in and listen to it because most of the time we're talking about how bad the Wallabies are going. 
So yep. it's it's yep. a difficult opportunity for RA particularly because they would have wanted to capitalize on this World Cup to build momentum back into the sport and build um, excitement for the Lions in 2025 and then the Home World Cup in 2027. But no one's tuning in. No one's talking about it. Even diehards like you and I are finding it difficult to want to tune in. We're both, we're all lockies in the same boat as well. We're all having to find new teams to support. I'm sitting here wearing a French jersey. I mean, I never thought that would come about. Uh, got a South African one in the cupboard as well because I'm, I'm hoping the Springboks get through and, and uh, do well and go back to back at this World Cup. But yeah, it's a bit, di- it's a bit difficult, it's a bit disappointing. We're going to do a deep dive next week on the whole, once we know the final permutations of Pool C, whether the Wallabies are through or not. If they do somehow scrape through, if a miracle happens and they do get through and they're in a quarterfinal, well, I guess we'll just carry on as normal and keep covering the games in the quarterfinals as far as they go. But realistically, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. So next week, we will do our deep dive into the performance of the Wallabies, uh, talk about their setup and the the picks and Eddie Jones and all of those things. So um, keep an eye on our socials because we'll probably put something out leading into that to get our fans' thoughts and, and get a bit of direction in that discussion because there's, it's a big one. There's a lot to talk about. We want to know what our fans want to hear covered, what questions they have that they they want us to answer. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to doing that. Um, it's going to be a pretty juicy one, I can imagine. So that'll mm-hmm. be big. But let's uh, let's dive into the results from this week. So Pool A, we had two games already played, so we can definitely um, cover those at this point. So the first one is New Zealand-Uruguay. Now, this was a thumping in all regards, 73 nil to New Zealand. Uh, I don't think many people saw any other possibility coming about, but um, one thing that must be said for this tournament and New and I mean, leading into it, people were starting to question the All Blacks and their regime and the way that they had, uh, I guess, played leading into the tournament. But on retrospect, they've really hit their straps at the right time. And these last few weeks, they've looked incredibly um, skilled at at a rugby side. Yep, 100%. And I think it just shows, again, you can't underestimate New Zealand. And uh, nobody was expecting a close game here, uh, but in terms of scoreline, I mean, scoreline between New Zealand and Uruguay. Uh, But what it does put forward for us is an incredibly tasty matchup now between Ireland and New Zealand, because um, it was possible within Pool A for the results um, for New Zealand actually to not make it out of the group if Italy had won against France, which is highly unlikely. Um, It was possible. So... It just it puts up this match between New Zealand and Ireland, which I am just oh, I cannot wait for. We'll talk about more of the kind of the analysis when we get to the Ireland Scotland game. But there's a few kind of uh, maybe maybe chinks in the armor. I think that New Zealand may well be able to exploit against the Irish, and it might be well positioned to be able to do so with the way that they play rugby. So I'm very excited to see how that comes out. And a huge part of me wants New Zealand to win. A huge part of me, because there's nothing better than the Irish yet again getting kicked out in the quarterfinals. There's nothing better. (laughs) They are deservedly right now one of the best teams in the world, and it would just be funny for somebody who's not Irish for them to crash out in the quarterfinals again after being in that position. Are you the same, Mitch? No, I feel that would be horrible. I think I I wouldn't love nothing more (laughs) than to see Ireland absolutely pants New Zealand. Now, I don't think either team's going to pants the other one, and it's not going to be 
and we will get to our quarterfinal previews in part two, but I don't think either of these teams are going to win by more than 10 points. It's going to be pretty tight in Canada, I can imagine. But I would love to see a world where New Zealand bow out in the quarterfinals to a very red-hot Irish team that we, we've seen this week and we've seen in this tournament. Uh, if they were embarrassed, even better. It would make me as an Australian fan feel just that little bit better that the Wallabies didn't go very far in the tournament if New Zealand only lasted an extra week. Is that selfish? Yeah. I don't know. You, you tell me. I don't know, man. I don't know. We'll take it. I think it is a bit selfish, but hey, Australia needs whatever we can get against New Zealand. And either way, we still bowed out in the pool stages, so it doesn't help that much. Well, the second game of the pools was France-Italy. Now, um, this one was, as as Ando kind of mentioned before, if Italy managed to get a win, and I think they needed a bonus point win against France, they would have kicked New mm-hmm. Zealand out of the pool stages and qualified second. That didn't happen. Uh, France completely smashed Italy. 60-7 to 7 was the final score here. Now, I definitely didn't think that France was going to put a score like this against Italy. I... I didn't think Italy had played that badly in this tournament leading up to this point. But the thing, the clear thing that comes out to me in this game is that France is playing a type of rugby that no one else in the world is currently playing. The level of detail, the level of uh, fluidity that they have in their attack, the how they keep the ball alive, how they have multiple options, multiple ball runners at all times, is just something that even the All Blacks aren't playing to this level. And I'm, I'm finding it pretty difficult to, to, to see an opposition that's really going to be able to shut down this team in the future weeks, particularly that they're playing in front of packed houses in France for the next three, four weeks. Hmm. Yeah, really, really well said. I think from from my view, the only team that's capable of stopping them at this point is um, Ireland or actually South Africa. I think those two teams are defensively sound enough to be able to withstand that French offense. Um, and one of the things that came out of the um, the Ireland game this week was their red zone efficiency. So every single time they entered the red zone, um, they had nine entries, they scored 36 points. So they had a 4.0 red zone efficiency, which is really, really high. And so it just shows that despite limited opportunities, they make the most of those. And I think against France, you have to make whatever opportunity you can take. And Ireland are a team position to do that. So if Ireland gets through, I reckon they would be an amazing opponent for France. And yeah, I can't wait to see a real ding-dong match in the quarterfinals against with some of these incredible teams. Now, just focusing on Italy for a moment, they've been pretty underwhelming in parts in this World Cup. I was kind of expecting them to do a little bit better, particularly against a team like France. Now, we have just pumped France's tyres up and we have said how good of a a team they are and how well they're playing this tournament. But Italy plays against France every single year in the Six Nations. So you would have thought they'd have some idea of how they could stop this or some familiarity with the game plan that uh, France was bringing into this game. But... It looked like these guys, the Italians, had never seen this French outfit before. They looked like schoolboys up against France. They were just completely lost in defense, people falling over all over the place, picking the wrong player all the time and, and falling for dummies. And and it just it didn't look very cohesive as a unit at all. Uh, and I was kind of expecting a little bit more from Italy for most of this tournament. We've seen patches and, and glimmers of, of certain players, mm. like Giovanni has been fantastic. Capuzzo at the back has had glimmers. I don't think they gave him enough ball, particularly in space in this tournament, or utilized him as much as they could have. 
and yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Italy bounce back from this. I do understand that they've got a new coach coming in next year and a whole new coaching structure. So maybe that's a good thing for them. And maybe it is time for them to kind of, you know, do a whole refresh and, and start again, because at the moment they're going to look back on this tournament and, and see that there were some opportunities they definitely didn't take and that they didn't play the style of rugby that they would be proud of. Yep, very well said. And I think it also just speaks to the point. You can know what's coming, but still not be able to stop it. And just because teams know how France play or know how Ireland play or whoever it is, that doesn't mean you've got the um, capacity to be able to prevent that from occurring across the full 80 minutes of the match. So uh, why don't we keep on going? Because there's some pretty big games across the other pools. So Pool A is now officially done for the World Cup 2023. So the final placings was France in first place on 18 points. New Zealand in second place on 15. They both go through to the quarterfinals. Now, Italy was in third place on 10 points. Uruguay on in fourth place on five points. And Namibia uh, last at the bottom of the label, on the bottom of the ladder on zero points. We, Lockie and I sort of spoke a little bit about them last week. Again, not a great tournament from them. Really a team on that needs a fair bit of um, exposure to some of the other top tier nations in, in world rugby at the moment to kind of get any better from where they currently are. Not a good tournament from them, but the fact that they were here and that they scored a few tries, I think is a, is a big bonus for them. Um, and I'll take some learnings from that. Let's move across into pool B now. Uh, this is Lockie's pool and Lockie isn't here to recover this. So we'll, we'll dive in for you this week, Lockie. Looking forward to having you back next week, mate. Uh, but the first game we've got, and then the second game hasn't been played at time of recording, so make sure you listen to the pod, or the second part of the pod that should be tacked on to the end of this anyway, where, where we'll go <laughs> into be. that. Uh, but Ireland and Scotland, 36-14 was the final score there. Now, again, like the previous game, there was permutations that if Scotland could beat Ireland, could beat Ireland, I think, just not get a losing bonus point, or not uh, not allow Ireland to get a losing bonus point, they would have kicked South Africa out of the World Cup. Now, that didn't happen. Final score, 36-14. A pretty dominant performance by Ireland in a lot of regards. A few late points scored by Scotland. Uh, any sort of thoughts on this Irish team at the moment, Ando? Mate, heaps of thoughts. Heaps. Absolutely loved watching this game. It was a beauty. Um, and 36-14 makes it look like a somewhat competitive encounter. And I just want to make it incredibly clear that this was a beatdown. This was an absolute beatdown by Ireland on Scotland. It was 31-0 um, before Scotland got a couple of well-deserved tries. But the tries came at a time where they'd already Ireland had already subbed off um, Johnny Sextrot, um, Peter Amani, and a few other players as well. So they, they'd gone through a lot of substitutions by the time uh, Scotland got their two tries back. Um, look, what do you say about this Irish team? They've got strength through their forward pack. Their attacking uh, shape is just absolutely brilliant. Their capacity to have incredible handling skills and be able to stretch the defensive line of the defending team is just amazing. So um, I'm not sure if you remember the detail around James Lowe's first try. Okay, so it came from a... Um, Ireland receive a box kick on the left edge. They then play three phases to the right. And then as the play comes back, if you watch Mac Hansen, bloody Aussie Mac Hansen, um, he's, he's actually set up on a right wing. But then after the third play, as the ball starts coming back, Hansen sprints from the right wing over to the left to create the overlap. 
which then places stress on the Scotland nine. I think it was Jamison Gibson Park. Um, he's in two minds about who to cover. Bondiaki goes over, gives it to Hanson, who then gives it the low for the try. But that only happens because of the work rate of the far side winger to make that ground onto the other side of the pitch to give the overlap. And it happened multiple times. You see it again in um, the Dan Sheehan try in the 43rd minute where Jamison Gibson Park again is able to be the one. Actually, no, I'm thinking the other way around. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna pause on that last comment that I was make, making, but I absolutely freaking loved that <laughs> first try and a work rate of Mac Hansen off the ball to show how they're trying to use players' work rate to create stress in defensive lines that their skills can then exploit. I think one of the most exciting things about watching the teams that are at the top of this World Cup and the top of the table at the moment, South Africa, Ireland, New Zealand, France, those four teams, what's so exciting about them is that when they have opportunities of scoring points, first of all, they take them and they score points. But if in some instance, the opposition does shut down that attacking um, set piece or that attacking play, they always have a backup option of scoring those points and finishing things off. Now, that's something that we don't see from the next level down. We don't see as effectively from teams like Australia. We don't see from Wales, particularly the Pacific Island teams. Fiji's getting better at it. But um, some of the emerging nations as well don't have that element. The Wallabies particularly this this World Cup campaign have consistently created opportunities for themselves through line breaks, through driving malls on the line, and they've just never been able to actually finish it off. And what teams like Ireland mm. and France can do is if they go to the line, if they go for a, a, a mall try and the defence sacks the mall or it just doesn't go, they put it through their hands and they score in the far wing or they do a kick pass and they get it out to the wing and they score that way. They always have like a plan B, a way of making sure that they, when they're in the attack zone, they come away with some points. And that's yep. just the yep. level of class between the top tier and the, and the emerging nations at the moment. Um, and the Wallabies really need to be looking at that moving forward and how they can get to that level. Because at the moment we're making opportunities, but we're not finishing them off. Ireland, this game had multiple opportunities. And even when Scotland did shut them down, they ended up scoring different ways, whether it was just a kick across to a winger who was left unmarked or just running a dummy line and putting a player through um, who goes untouched under yep. the posts. Yep. Yeah, look, there's you're so right in that it's that efficiency that I mentioned earlier about the red zone efficiency, which is so key to how Ireland play. Um, early, well, basically within the first half, they did not have anywhere near as much possession or territory. Um, a lot of the territory would actually be within their own 22 and within their own half, and yet they were clearly up on the um, scoreboard as well. Uh, I just want to correct something I said earlier. It wasn't um, placing stress on Janice Gibson Park. He's the Irish nine, not the Scottish nine. It was Ali Price. <laughs> um, so my bad. <laughs> um, but that that idea of the, um, the block runners, the looping around the back to create multiple pictures for the defense like morgues back in um oh, what was that podcast that he he did in the break between rugby and getting up yeah the rugby ruckus um you know how he used to have this phrase that was um he used to, he wanted the defense to have multiple pictures you need to create lots of pictures for the defense and is that making them have multiple pictures that causes a wrong decision for the attack to actually be able to be successful 
Ireland just do the same thing nearly every time where they've got a straight hard runner who they sometimes use. They do sometimes use like Bundyaki on the unders line to crash yeah. through, but then they'll still have him run the same line. But then Johnny Sexton or another player will be running the loop and be able to receive the ball back and then have an overlap. And so it's just simple and effective based upon work rate and knowing where they need to be in each play. The strike plays, the 25th minute try to Hugo Keenan that they had, just just a thing of absolute beauty. So there's so much that Ireland is doing well. Uh, do want to call out though, um, Ollie Smith gets a yellow card in the second half for tripping Johnny Sexton after the whistle is gone. And it was a nothing trip as well. It's just like a little kind of hanging foot or something like that. I was just like, come on, man. The whistle's already gone. Why is that a yellow card, Mitch? Like, the, the, the foul play guidelines don't state it has to be a yellow card. It starts at a penalty. So why do you think the ref went to yellow card for that? Oh, I think he's trying to set a, a precedent a precedent moving forward and he had spoken to the players. There was a, another encounter a little bit earlier on where there was a bit of a scuffle that went mm. over the sideline and over the sideboard. And so I think he was just trying to, and correct me if I'm wrong, this was Nick Berry, this game, right? Uh, yeah. Or did he do so. the England game? Yeah. 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 I think it was. No, I think it was. I'll check. Yeah. I think he was just trying to sort of lay down the law and say, look, we're not, we're not accepting any of this kind of off the ball after the whistle, fracas we're not we're not doing that anymore pretty soft yellow mm. card in in all regards and probably didn't need wasn't necessary but um i guess that's what he's trying to set down lay down the law moving into the quarterfinals and later in the tournament yep yep fair enough um and look the one thing i wanted to point out as a final comment from me about this is the two tries that scotland had they actually both came from deep attacks. So one of them came off a kick return that Finn Russell did really well to make a half break and then have some roll on from there. Um, Jack Dempsey actually was pretty instrumental in that try as well. But I feel like he's a trader, but a lot of people kind of within rugby probably wouldn't consider that. But it's a bit hard <laughs> seeing a Waratah and a Wallaby now playing for Scotland um, after really not that long. Uh, but anyway, um, that both of the tries came from kick, atta- kick attacks, uh, kick deep attacks. One of them off a kick return, another one from inside the 22. And so that requirement to have players back from Ireland, so blocking potentially 50-22 kicks, um, meant that Scotland was actually able to stretch the Ireland wide attack and then get shoulders through a tackle a couple of offloads away and then go from there. And so I just wonder if, um, and this will be kind of leading to what I'm going to talk about with the quarterfinal chat in part two i just wonder if new zealand are going to be really well positioned to be a team that can attack from deep and exploit Mm. that opportunity because that was literally the only way that scotland were successful they looked completely toothless in phase play against ireland um irish defense was way too strong so i wonder if new zealand will try and capitalize on that yeah, it'd be interesting, and I'm looking forward to chatting about that a little bit later. So let's leave it for there. Um, with one game still to play, I don't think it's going to have any... Well, it, it can't have any uh, changes to the, the final standings on the pool. So Ireland is in top place on 19 points. South Africa is on second place on 15. So they both go through to their quarterfinals, and they will cross over with Pool A that we spoke about previously. So some pretty exciting quarterfinals coming up there. Maybe we start talking around the draw again and, and sort of the, the fairness of these this pool system because these two quarterfinals are pretty much finals of death and the other the other side, not so much. Uh, but Scotland in third place on 10 points, Tonga in fourth place on zero points and Romania also yet to score a win uh, on zero points. 
Let's move across into Pool C. So we have had one game played already, and that was Wales over Georgia. 43-19 was the final score in this game. Now, I haven't caught a whole lot of this game. I did. I was up at the time of kickoff, and I did watch the first maybe 15 minutes of it. i got to say, I was actually pretty impressed with Georgia in that first 15 minutes. They kept mm. Wales scoreless in that time. Um, I was pretty surprised when I got up in the morning and saw the final score was 43-19. I don't think the first 10 minutes of the game reflected the other... 70. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I think that Georgia played well, but this was quite a composed and and just experienced performance from a Wales team that did actually make some make some changes. Uh, so yeah, Lewis Reese Zamet was excellent out wide. Um, I thought that Costello, the stand-in ten, was uh, who, who came in for Gareth Anscombe, who was out injured, uh, was really quite serviceable within this game. Did well, and it was just a case of um, Georgia looked good, kind of. Uh, maybe up until about the 50th minute, and then Wales were just able to run away with the game. Um, they were just too composed and had too much experience across the whole of their team to be able to, um, yeah, to be able to stop. Uh, yeah, Georgia weren't able to counter it, and so yeah, I, I honestly think that Georgia did well. However, they just didn't have the experience to be able to run away with things further after they put themselves in a good position. What did you think of the all in brawl in like the 60th or 70th minute of the game? <laughs> did you see that? Loved it. Loved it. Yeah, yeah, totally did. Um, look, it was it was a bit of handbags, really. Like, yeah. there was just nothing to it. Um, and I don't think that... Because uh, there were yellow cards. Uh, the Was it the one Georgian player that received the yellow card? Oh, okay. No, one each way. Um, yeah, both got one. Yeah, okay. I just... I just thought it was a bit of, yeah, okay, I can understand why when there's that many people that have gone in that they've received a yellow card. Um, and it was, <laughs> and it was even really like side, well players on the sideline in bibs that were in there pulling players out of it and <laughs> getting involved and coaches and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it was one of those things. Where, like Nothing really happens these days because teams are too, um, like players know that if they throw a punch, they're gone. Like it's an immediate red card. Um, <laughs> and so it was just disappointing that Niniashvili got yellow carded because he was absolutely electric um, for Georgia. So would have loved to have seen him on the pitch for the whole game. But yeah, it didn't change the result. Yeah. I mean, part of me, part of me wants to see an old school mass fight breakout on a field on a rugby game somewhere maybe not now in the world cup that we're getting to like quarterfinals and things but sometimes particularly when your team's getting beaten by so many points like the waratahs or the wallabies are down by 30 or 40 sometimes <laughs> you just want to see them just unleash and start throwing punches and don't worry about sanctions and whatnot let's let the boys go at it part of me just wants to see that happen <laughs> <laughs> Well, the final standings at this point, now there is one game yet to play, that is Fiji and Portugal, which should see this this table change quite dramatically. At the current time, Wales is in first place. They're on 19 points. They can't fall any lower than that. So they've locked in their quarterfinal. Australia is currently on 11 points in second place. Fiji's in third place on 10 points. So if, as we've said, and you, you would have heard this, at nauseam over the last few days and over last week. If Portugal can beat Fiji and deny them a losing bonus point, Australia go through the quarters. So that game is being played, I think, 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Um, our time, stick on for the podcast. The second half, we will talk through what actually happened there and hopefully the Wallabies are still in it, but we don't deserve to be. Uh, we will see what happens there. But 
Uh, Georgia's in fourth place and Portugal is in uh, fifth place on two points. So still things to come there. Now let's finish off on the final game of this part of the podcast, and that is Pool D, England 18, Samoa 17. Hey, this was an absolute cracker of a game. Um, There was so much that was good about it, particularly from Samoa. Um, I'm going to say something that I'm not sure if this is like, I'm not sure if it's controversial or anything like that, but I'm just going to say that you, you can pretty easily argue that Samoa didn't actually deserve the win for for two basic reasons. Um, the first of which is that they didn't have the composure to make the most of the opportunities near the end of the game. So they struggled to set up for a field goal in the 77th minute, and they knocked on in the final attacking play in the 79th minute, and they didn't regather England's clearing box kick after that knock-on. So they weren't able to do that. Um, but they were able to put immense pressure on England with their wide running channel and offload game. So when you combine that with Wong's finishing ability on the wing, it was just excellent. So like, I'm just not buying into the whole Samoa were robbed part of some of the commentary that's come out after this match. Um, so I think it's just, yeah, important for us to be considering that, yeah, Samoa played well. They did have a semi-controversial try turned down for them after the conversion kick had been taken. But that rule allowing the TMO to interject after the conversion kick, but before the kickoff had actually come into play a few months back. Um, and I didn't think it was that controversial. I thought it was semi-clear that he had knocked on. Um, I didn't think it was that dodgy. What do you reckon about that? No, match? boo. You're wrong. You're wrong, Ando. <laughs> so... If you dive into the rules and you look at the wording on it, I think what they've changed is it needs to be clear and obvious. And the reason that they have allowed this change is in the instance that the ground or the home broadcaster presents an angle that the TMO or the referee didn't see leading into the try being scored. So if that angle becomes available after the... So say, so not in this example, but say, for, say in a different world... Um, Maybe we look at the, the the try that France scored or New Zealand scored in the opening game of the World Cup from the Rico Ioane try that looked from all measures like it was a forward pass. In that instance, they score the try, they kick the conversion, and then there's a new angle that comes to light from the director that says that shows it's clearly a forward pass. In that instance, that's when they can show the referee and say, actually, we've got a new angle that proves without a doubt that this actually was a forward pass that we didn't show you in yep. the TMO replay before. So in that instance, that's what it's for. Now, I would argue in this instance that the the information wasn't clear and obvious. Like the knock-on was so innocuous in that it wasn't clear. Watching it live play, it just looked like three players all jostling for the ball and it wasn't obvious that there had been a knock-on. So if the referee thought that was fine in real play and didn't call it back, didn't review it before awarding the try and then let the conversion be taken. I don't think that it's under the current rules. I don't think that it's correct that you should then be able to review it and say, actually, no, on second thought, it's a knock on. Because if we look really minutely, you can see that in the three hands that touch the ball, the blue hand, the blues player hand does fractionally touch the ball that then moves on to the, the, the white player's hand, da, 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 which is what happened. So I, I don't necessarily if- agree with that. I'm going to jump in. So I would say that if what you're saying is correct and there is that specificity, and you're going to have to put this up on Twitter, you're going to have to put this up on Discord to be able to prove what you're saying here. And if that is the case, then I'll agree with you. Then I'll agree with you. 
Um, if it, if you're not able to prove that, then I'm going with my own opinion. <laughs> um, and if that's the case, then hopefully that results in England getting kicked out, and that would have been brilliant. Um, but we'll well, bring in, it up in, in part B. That. Coming up, part two coming up shortly. Yeah, we'll have that for yeah. tomorrow night. Yeah, yeah, cool. Um, a couple of other comments I just wanted to make about this game. Uh, England, congratulations on Farrell for becoming the highest scoring England player ever, beating Johnny Wilkinson. Um, also, congratulations on being as... Um, I did notice this, but Squid Rugby has now put it up on Twitter, so I feel like I'm kind of stealing from him, even though I noticed it before he posted it. Um, he's also the first person at the World Cup to have a penalty given for taking too long on a conversion kick. So congratulations, congratulations, Owen Farrell. You have won that record as well. The first person to go over the allotted time. Um, now, the other thing I'll quickly say is England, yeah, didn't really impress me within this game. Uh, they looked fairly pedestrian in their attack apart from their opening try to, I think it's Ollie Chesson. Um, that was a really well-worked, great balls through hands, just just good, impressive, um, beating the rush Samoan defence there. Danny Kerr's try was absolute garbage defence from Milani Mataveo whilst they were a man down from uh, Tamua Manu's yellow card. And so I just didn't, I didn't think England were that good. And I think they're going to get into the quarters and they're just, they're, they're probably going to reach the semi because they're on the easy side of the draw. So they're going to come up against either Fiji or Australia and England are capable of beating either Fiji or Australia. And then they're going to get a semi-final berth whilst one of two of Ireland, New Zealand, France or South Africa won't get to the semi-final, which is just an absolute travesty. Um, and just shows you how unbalanced both sides of these pools actually are. All right. Well, let's look at the final placings for pool D. Um, actually, Andrew, why don't you quickly run through this for me? I'm just getting something up yep. for our slideshow or the next bit. Yeah, perfect. So let's go into the Pool D results just quickly. So England is sitting pretty on 18 points, playing four games. You then have both Argentina and Japan sitting on nine points each. So they're actually playing tonight. We'll get the answers and results in Pool uh, in part two coming up in a moment, but they're both on nine points with Samoa and Chile on seven and zero points respectively. So a quick comment that I'll make about Samoa is that give this team more time and quality games against higher tier opposition, and they are going to be really, really impressive moving forward. Um, we can see the improvement from the Fijian, uh, Fijian national team with the creation and quality of the Fijian Indra, and where there's been some crit criticism directed towards Moana Pacifica and New Zealand rugby's kind of role in, in, in that franchise or in that dynamic, but it hopefully will come to pass that um, Moana Pacifica can be providing more combinations and more plays for the Samoan and Tongan national teams. And yeah, I'm really, really hoping that Samoa will continue to improve moving forward. And I'd really like to see um, Australia, or at the very least Australia A, be playing more, more games against some of the Pacific nations as well. That'd be brilliant. Teams like Samoa and Tonga would be awesome. The crowds would be so much fun to go and watch. So um, very, very keen for more matchups there and they deserve more games from the Tier 1 teams. Yeah, it's one of those things that we've um, we've spoken about in a while, and I did see a tweet uh, come out. I can't remember exactly who it was now um, that said it that Samoa in the next two or three years have one test lined up against Scotland in the summer, and that's a test that they that is like between what Scotland already have against other nations, but it's the only it's a sole test for Samoa, 
And that's realistically, it's just mm. not good enough. Like a team of this caliber yep. is not going to get any better, as you said, without playing consistently against the top tier nations. So yes, they do have the Pacific Nations Cup. Yes, they do have opportunities that come around every now and then for them to play. But to be playing teams in the top 10 nations of the world once in four years, when it, particularly when it comes to World Cups, is just not good enough and they're not going to progress without that. Yep. Completely agree, my friend. Completely agree. All right. Let's uh, get into the quarterfinal uh, lineup. I'm just going to bring it up for us in one sec. It's just loading. All right. So basically what we're going to do here is we're going to talk through the first half of the quarterfinal previews. Uh, so within part one, we're going to talk about the quarterfinals that we know are already in play. And then when we get to part two, we're going to talk about the quarterfinals that are yet to be decided. So we, we will be discussing Ireland versus New Zealand and then France versus South Africa. So starting off first, we've got Ireland versus New Zealand. So that's going to be getting played on Sunday, the 15th of October at 6 a.m. Uh, Sydney time, I believe. And yep. so maybe 5 a.m. or 6 a.m., depending upon what time zone <laughs> your uh, computer is set to right now. Um, but this game, I've already put in my thoughts about how New Zealand might be able to try and exploit or do something a bit different with the attacking from depth rather um, and try and exploit the lack of width in the Irish back line. What do you think, Mitch? How do you think this game is going to go? You before said that no team would win by more than 10. Yeah, this, I think this is going to be a real arm wrestle. I think it'll be a high scoring game. I see a lot of tries being scored but I don't see the margin being more than 10 points either way. I think, look, it, it, it'll go one of two ways, actually. It'll either be high scoring with both teams scoring a lot of tries with the scoreline and the margin being relatively close, or it'll be very reminiscent of the Ireland and South Africa game where there was one try scored and just a lot of penalties kicked. That's very, very tight, mm. very entertaining and a very exciting game of rugby, but not a whole lot of points scored. Now, if you ask Ian Foster which one he'd prefer, I know what he'd answer. He'd prefer the first option with lots of running, running rugby and try scored. But realistically, we've got two nations coming up against each other that have, in some ways, different, completely different styles of play. New Zealand are a team that like to throw the ball around and are expansive, whereas Ireland can do that when they need to and they don't have the defence or they're not coming up against a defensive team that's squeezing them and applying that much pressure. But they can, they're also a team that can just grind and, and keep it tight and get penalties and just keep that scoreboard ticking over. And I wouldn't be surprised if this is the style of play that they want to bring into this game. Ireland know that they can't give New Zealand counterattack opportunities. They know that they can't be kicking long to them, that that's where they're going to get hurt. So if I, I'm expecting Ireland to keep it really tight, keep a lot of possession, don't give New Zealand a whole lot of ball and ground out a win like they did against South Africa. Yeah, completely agree. And, I mean, it just... New Zealand aren't the kind of... The the ebony statue warriors of old where you just think that nobody's going to be able to conquer them. They, they are fallible. They are weaknesses. I mean, this is an Irish team that won the first away series in New Zealand in ever in history in irish history and it just shows that this new zealand team there there are weaknesses and chinks within the armor and 
I personally think that the defensive integrity of the New Zealand team is going to, or the All Blacks is really going to struggle against the pressure that the Irish are going to be able to apply. And I also don't particularly rate the front three of New Zealand, or at least I should say the props. I think Cody Taylor's class. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't rate the starting or bench props for New Zealand. They're not world class. And you're coming up against an Irish type five that are just absolutely incredible. And the players they bring off the bench are just similarly um, impressive as well. And yeah, I just, I personally think it will be a very tight, low scoring encounter. I don't see anybody scoring lots of points against Ireland at all within this World Cup, but I would agree, not going to be more than 10 within either way. And personally, I want New Zealand to win, but I think Ireland are going to win by about eight. I don't want New Zealand to win this. I want Ireland to win. I think it'd be fantastic for their narrative, for their the last four years that they've had to be the first Irish team that's ever gotten past a quarterfinal. They deserve to play a semifinal or even the final, the way that they've played this tournament. One thing that worries me from the All Blacks perspective is their leadership and the composure or the lack of that they haven't had over the past few years. And we saw that in the first test of this World Cup, that when France was applying a lot of pressure to them, scoring tries and the points the the scoreboard was getting away from them you could tell that the players were getting rattled they were sort of looking around and no one was either really sticking up and putting their hand up and um uncharacteristically they never came together and just regrouped and got back on top which we've seen new zealand do so much in the past and so i feel like if ireland can play a game like they they played exactly the same against south africa where they squeezed them they kept it tight like i said before i think new zealand will panic And I think this team doesn't have a strong enough leadership group that's going to be able to regroup and say, all right, guys, we just need to withstand this pressure for the moment, but it will turn back in our favor. And if Ireland can do that and can keep that pressure on them, I think we'll start to see some players making mistakes. We'll start to see cards given. We'll start to see penalties given away. And that's where the game could open up in Ireland's favor. So I'd love to see Ireland win. And I think that they've got the skill set and they've got the game plan to beat this Kiwi side. Yep. All right. Well said. We'll see how the results go. And the final the final quarterfinal or quarterfinal number four uh, will be played Monday, 16th of October, 6 a.m. our time in Australia. And that is France against South Africa. Now, look, we, we said before around the draws. Realistically, we need to state it that these two games should be the semifinals. Both of these yep. teams, all four of these teams should be playing for a place in the Rugby World Cup final. It's just barbaric at the moment that this is the two of these nations are going home in the quarters. It, it just doesn't feel right. But anyway, France versus South Africa. Do you think South Africa has enough uh, power to overcome the home advantage that France has and put on a performance that's going to beat them? Oh, look, I'm I'm really not sure. Uh, This French team has just been absolutely incredible over the last few, well, over this whole tournament, over the last couple of years. They've been pinned, um, they've been targeted from the last, what, 18 months as being the team that's going to win the Rugby World Cup. And South Africa, although they have been playing well so far, um, I'm not sure that they've got the composure, particularly across their back line, to be able to enable them to come away with the win here. I mean, they have Lucanio Am that's coming back from injury, but he's still kind of running on half a leg. Um, although, uh, was it Dialende or Creel who was substituting for him? Um, 
which whoever it was uh, did did an admirable job within it within the pool stages, and I'm just not sure if they're settled enough at ten. Is Andre Pollard going to be coming back in, and will he be match fit in order to do the running game required just beyond having an accurate boot? Because I mean, are you just rushing him in there for his goal kicking accuracy? And if so, what does that do to the rest of your game? So I think there's a few more questions around South Africa and their capacity to beat France than there is about France's capacity to beat South Africa, if that makes sense. Um, so I, I think France are going to come away with this game, but man, it's going to be one hell of an encounter and I cannot wait for these forward packs to go up against one another. I know I'm wearing my French jersey, but I'm I'm rooting for South Africa in this game. I'd love to see them make it through to the final and, and defend a, a back-to-back World Cup. Uh, I... I'm. I have faith that Rassi Erasmus has a plan for South Africa. Now, if we look at the permutations and the way that the pools were set up, these are the quarterfinals. This was the best way that it was going to happen. Realistically, the it prob. This is when you sort of drew who you're going to be playing in different in the the calculations. This was the most likely scenario that France was going to play South Africa in the quarters. So mm. I rec. I. Yep. I have no doubt. The Rassi Erasmus and the Springboks have been preparing for this game because if they get past this game, they play what the winner of England and potentially Fiji. I think that's the way the, the draw goes. Yeah, correct. Yeah. Yep. So England slash Fiji or Australia. They're not going to be worried about either of those two teams, so they will most likely make a final. I, I believe that France has got a plan, a game plan, and a style in mind to play against France. We saw it in two thousand and nineteen. That all through the pool, the pool stages and the quarterfinals, or the playoff finals up until the final, South Africa looked good, but not convincingly out and out favourites in that World Cup. But they played a completely different style in that final, and they deserve to win that. They completely outclassed England in all facets of that game. I would not be surprised if South Africa turn up with a completely different game plan in this game and just blow France off the park. Maybe not convincingly off. Uh, like a, a big win, but I wouldn't be surprised if they come in and win this game. Yep. Yep. Well said. Um, I, can, I can see that perspective. I can see that happening personally. I mean, I'm I hoping for that. that. France has just been playing too well. I'm hoping that. I think that the home ground advantage. Yeah, to make your wife happy, mate. <laughs> and my in-laws, and that's the main thing, right? Um, <laughs> Keeping the family anyway, happy. It's going to be really well, exciting um, to see these we... finals. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be exciting to see the finals. And why don't we wrap things up there? Because we're going to finish part one, knowing that by the time you're listening to this, part two is going to be here. And we're going to have all the answers to many of the questions we've spoken about so far in the pool stages. And we'll have the final uh, quarterfinal spots wrapped up. So let's finish it there and then move on to part two. Thanks, team. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to part two of our podcast being recorded on Monday night and it is final, it is confirmed, the Wallabies have woefully been kicked out of the Rugby World Cup or though for a moment there Mitch, it actually looked like Portugal might get the job done against Fiji, how close was that game from an Australian perspective of course. Well, they did. They did get the the chockies. They did get the win, Not which was what exciting. We needed, it just they didn't get. They didn't do the deny Fiji the bonus point that was going to keep us in the World Cup. But I mean, all credit to Portugal. That was a fantastic performance, and I think Fiji sort of slipped up a little bit. We'll talk about it in a few minutes when we get to it. But uh, 
I don't think we would be pretty happy as Wallabies fans if we had managed <laughs> yep. to scrape over F- yep. Fiji into the quarterfinals, particularly if we went up against England next week and got absolutely creamed. So I think it's, it's going to be really exciting to see Fiji and what they can do this late in the competition. And I'm, I'm expecting a big result against uh, England next week. He's hoping. Well, why don't we just dive straight into the game? Because it was the most important one from the final matches we haven't covered in part one. So Portugal were able to get up for their first ever win at the Rugby World Cup, 24-23, to with an absolutely clutch try being scored in the 78th minute, converted in the 79th minute to give Portugal the 24-23 win. Absolute scenes over in Toulon. An absolutely wonderful, wonderful match. And um, uh, Samuel Marquez, the scrum half, saying that, yeah, uh, we do think there is going to be a statue of the coach Patrice Lagasquet uh, over in Portugal. So he very much deserves it. It was a great game, great win. Uh, Mitch, what were your first feelings when you saw the result and were able to watch the game? Yeah, I mean, I I woke up to a few messages coming in from Discord yep. that Portugal had won, and so I got was pretty excited and was thinking to myself, and this was early hours of the morning at that point. Have have they done it? Have they actually done enough for us? Are we through to the quarterfinals? And saw the score, realized that only won by a point. But once I got to watch the game and saw the highlights and and the mini package, Portugal played phenomenally, and they did so well. They've played really well this whole World Cup. And maybe controversially, I think they played better than Australia did for large parts of this <laughs> World Cup. Um, their attack just looked so much more uh, in sync. The players looked like they knew what they were doing and how they wanted to move the ball around, whereas the Wallabies didn't necessarily do that. Uh, one of the we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it in a sec, uh, but one of the things I was most impressed with that it felt to me like Portugal played the Fiji style of rugby better than Fiji was able to. Yep. Yeah, look, there was... Uh, I want to jump back to your point before about how uh, comparatively the Portuguese team could be argued to have played better than the Wallabies. Um, I think we're also looking at it in terms of the expectations that we have for a Tier 1 team versus a, a largely amateur mm. Portuguese team. Um, but you're right, there was a fluidity about the backline play of the Portuguese. I should say that more in unstructured opportunities. They just had a speed and an ability to make opportunities and take opportunities that came open to them, which was actually granted quite regularly by Fiji, uh, uncharacteristic Fiji and lack of handling composure. So there are lots of drop balls throughout this game that actually gifted a lot of time to Portugal on the ball. And that was really significant because it enabled Portugal to um, overcome their pretty significant scrum difficulties that they were having throughout the game, as well as some of the challenges that they were having at the line out too. So Man, this Fiji are going to be devastated about this. But you just think for their chances against England, which we'll get to, if they can just tighten up the ball carry, then they're going to be in for a good opportunity to take out England and get through into the semis. Yeah, the the key takeaway I took from this game is we we've seen Fiji in their first games of this World Cup, particularly against Australia and Wales, play a really structured game. They've slowed it down. They've you know relied on set piece. They've taken the points when they're on offer and they've really sort of ground down their wins. They weren't flashy that we've come to expect from Fiji, like we sort of have seen in the past few years and throwing the ball around and making line breaks and just playing general helter-skelter style rugby. They didn't do that. Portugal in this game did do that a little bit more, and I think Fiji bought into that, and they saw some of the line breaks and 
the way that Portugal was moving the ball and certain players in the Fijian team almost, I don't want to say like reverted back to their sevens base instincts, but they definitely didn't stick to the the structured style that they had played against Australia and Wales that was so effective for them earlier in the comp. And they were starting to to take runs and make decisions that weren't the right ones. Um, Herbosi, a number of times, got himself isolated, made great line breaks mm. and made massive meters, but ran away from his defenders and so ended up getting tackled and then quite easily turned over from, by Portugal. And so when they were doing things like that, they then started to throw the pass. They Portugal started to get some ascendancy on the scoreboard, putting them under a lot of pressure. Passes started to be thrown that didn't need to be thrown. The the tempo increased. You could tell the players were starting to get a little bit, um, I guess, aware of what was actually happening, that there was potentially a boil over coming and the handling error yep. started to creep into the game. They started to drop the ball. They started to, in try scoring opportunities too, they just weren't clinical in that area. Yeah, completely agreed. And um Look, I think that we really just need to focus in this quick wrap-up that we're doing of this game of just well done to Portugal. It's absolutely incredible. Um, one of the really cool things is, oh, where was it? Where was it? Where was it? Um, they were saying how the... Yeah, cool. Um, the coach, Patrice Legasque, was saying, I hoped he would give Marta Rafael Storti, who is um, the one that made the break down the wing, uh, to be able to set up the try to Marta back inside. I hoped he would give him, Marta, the ball, because during the European Championships, he had the ball, but he made a mistake. It's Rodrigo Marta. They've played together since they were six years old. That's maybe why he gave him the ball. And it's just so good, that idea of these players coming through. They've got these connections and this, I don't know, sense of brotherhood for the men's game with the players they've been with for such a long period of time. And for this team to be able to share this moment and this experience together is going to be so, so significant for them. But particularly moving forward as well, just for the idea that these emerging teams can still get results at the World Cup, even if they do get um, some pretty hefty scorelines against them at times then we, they do still have the opportunity to get a result now and then. And it does speak to what we were saying uh, in part one regarding the idea of more games against higher class opposition required for emerging nations. So more of that, very keen to see, even if it's against Australian A, Australia A or the equivalent for different teams, that'd be really important. And so that leaves the Pool C results. We've got Wales on 19 points, Fiji on 11, um, Australia on 11 and Portugal and Georgia on six and three respectively. However, because Fiji beat us, uh, they go through, unfortunately. Um, I think it might also be points for and against, but either way, Fiji is above us and Australia is officially kicked out of the 2023 World Cup. Mitch, let's just let's just stick on that point for a bit. I know we're going to delve into that in more detail next week, a bit of a bit of a deep dive into the woes of the Wallabies, but how does it feel? Like we mocked England mercilessly in 2015 when we kicked them out of their home World Cup. And now it's nearly just as bad for us getting kicked out in the group stages of the French World Cup. If I'm being um, optimistic and being the, you know, positive Aussie rugby fan <laughs> that we have come to be known as on this podcast, I guess I would say in some ways, maybe not quite as bad as 2015 First of all, we weren't hosting the World Cup. That would be horrendous if we did this performance at a home World Cup. Second, I think the narrative is a little bit different just in the fact that we sacked Dave Rennie 
eight, nine months before the World Cup, brought in Eddie Jones and sort of just completely got rid of the team, put in a completely new game plan and and just axed everything. So in some ways, there's a little bit of an asterisk against this one. Um, had we had a consistent coach leading in, had Dave Rennie had these results, I think we're probably all sitting here going, this is ridiculous. This, you know, we should have seen this coming and done something to avert that crisis. Uh, so that's the optimistic part of me. The true blue-blooded Australian rugby fan is just sitting here feeling, to, I mean, we've, we've had a few weeks to, to process this now and we could see that it was coming. It, it's not a, a shock by any means. In some ways, I think when we reflect on the way the Wallabies have actually just gone about their um, practices over the last week or two, it almost felt, feels like Eddie Jones thought this was inevitable as well. The fact that he didn't bring in replacements for three of the key players that got injured, four even when you include Nick Frost. Nick Frost, Carter Gordon, Taniel Tupo, Will Skelton, Max Jorgensen, that's five players actually that in the last two or three weeks went down injured and we didn't bring anyone into the squad. Mm -hmm. So realistically, you probably look back and think, I don't think even Eddie Jones was expecting us to get out of the pools because if he had, if he was hopeful in some way that... Portugal was going to get the points and that Fiji wasn't going to make it and we were, surely you'd want those replacements in the squad two weeks ago playing and training with the team to be ready should we get to a quarterfinal next week. Um, but, yeah, I guess lots more to unpack next week. <laughs> yeah, let's save that for next week and we'll keep on moving on with the other games that were played um, between when we recorded last night and now. So in Pool D, we had Japan versus Argentina, an incredibly entertaining game which was deciding the runner-up for Pool D, and Argentina has gone through, confirming their place in the quarterfinal versus Wales. So, Mitch, you caught a decent chunk of this game. I've seen the highlights of it. It looks like a pretty entertaining affair where Japan never gave up. Yeah, it was, and I don't think the scoreline reflects the, the closeness of this game by any means. Argentina were good, and they scored some pretty good tries early on, uh, but Japan never gave up, and they continued to to apply pressure and continue to take their opportunities, scored tries, kicked field goals and took their penalties when they're on offer. Uh, I think from memory, I don't have notes written in front of me, but from memory, it was 10 minutes to go when Japan were within, I think they might've just been up or they were within two or three points of Argentina. So at that point, I was kind of pretty keen on seeing how this game played out and if there was going to be an upset there, if Japan was going to kick Argentina out as well. Um, Argentina ended up going on to score two late tries, which ended up pushing that margin out a little bit. But definitely an exciting game from Japan. Definitely a good perform, a very good performance from Argentina that able to hold off a fast finishing Japanese outfit. Probably on re reflection, not the best World Cup that Japan would have wanted coming into it. But um, I guess a lot to move forward from a lot of positives that Argentina was able to score. Like their outside backs particularly looked really mm. deadly in this game. Mm. And they're going to be needed next week when they go up against Wales. Yeah, completely agree. And it's just, we, we always know the Argentinians have a potent backline. Uh, it's just whether or not they can honestly keep their cool and execute on what they're capable of doing within high-pressure situations. And so often we've seen players like Tomas Lavanini, who just is guaranteed to do something stupid once a campaign and get a red card. Uh, hasn't done it so far, so maybe maybe he's coming up pretty soon against Wales. Who knows? 
Um, but like we said before, um, with the Pool C results, we've now got the Pool D results. England on 18, Argentina on 14 points, Japan 9, Samoa 7, Chile 0. So Argentina goes through. Now, uh, there was one more game that we had, wasn't there? There was the... Yep, I'm going back for it. Tonga and Romania, 45-24, final score in that one. Perfect. And this was not for any positions. Both teams were out of the competition by this point. Um, So I haven't had a chance with work today to catch up on any of this game. Have you, my friend? I saw the highlights and um, no disrespect to Tonga. Good to see them get the results, but... Not a, an outstanding level of rugby in this game, okay. unfortunately. Tonga looked good and, and took their opportunities when they were on offer. But uh, Romania, have again, one of the nations that haven't put up a great deal of defense in this tournament. And um, yeah, so 45-24. Okay. The fact that they were able to score 24 points... I think is a, is a good thing for them. Yeah, all right. Well, let's move on because we did want to talk about the quarterfinal matchups. Now, we've already spoken to Ireland, New Zealand, France, South Africa. And so let's touch on, we'll start with Wales, Argentina. So um, I've made a couple of comments already. What are your thoughts on how this match is going to unfold between Wales and Argentina? My head says Wales in this game. My heart says Argentina. I would love to see Michael Checker get through to a uh, semi-final in his, you know, third World Cup, um, his second with a different nation. Be fantastic story. Wales has played pretty good and pretty and has been a, a bit uh, more improved in this World Cup than I think we gave them credit for leading mm. into it. So they definitely have the style and the skill set to win this game. Should everything go their way, the thing that I think is riding in Argentina's favor is Michael Checker. We know what a, a man motivator he is, how he does the speeches, how he gets players up and, and fired up and ready for big occasions. He was good enough to do that at the Wallabies. This Argentina team thrives on passion. So he's one of the coaches. He's one of the people that's going to be really important and key in getting this Argentina team fired up, ready for the occasion, not overawed at all. Um, and just, yeah, ready to rip in and, and, and and really show what they can do at this next level. So I I guess the the challenge for Argentina though in saying that will be that they don't get too overemphasized, don't get too overenthused, and don't like you said before in your little preview, don't start to give away silly penalties, don't lose their heads, don't get too emotional, um, which they can do. Like when you look back at that performance against um, the All Blacks in Sydney. 2021 or whatever it was during the COVID years when they got their first ever victory against them really, really fired up some of those players. Mm-hmm. And I think if we can see that sort of performance again, Wales is going to be in for a pretty, pretty big day. Yeah, I think it's for Argentina, it's always, like we mentioned, that combination of passion versus execution. And in that game, in that momentous game against New Zealand, they were able to execute and have accuracy alongside the physicality and energy that their emotional engagement within that space enabled them to have. Um, and it's a question of whether or not they can do that. It's it's kind of like how Fiji played. We know Fiji are capable of being a far better rugby team than what they demonstrated against Portugal. And it's whether or not Argentina can actually execute yeah. on what we know they're capable of doing. Uh, and in a high stakes environment of a quarterfinal, it's really, really hard to say. What they're lucky in is that they're going up against Wales. And that is, I'm saying that as a genuinely half Welsh person, you'd rather go up against Wales and Ireland <laughs> or New Zealand or South Africa or um, France. 
Okay, so with that in mind, yeah. Argentina are probably in the best position they've been in for a while um, in, to make it really deep into this Rugby World Cup. So moving on to the other match that we haven't had a time to spruik yet, we have England versus Fiji. Now, this is going to be a fascinating encounter because Mitch, you rightly said before that throughout this um, throughout this competition, we've seen a Fijian team which is playing a bit more um, typical or yeah, typical Test rugby. Now, what I mean by that is focus on more structured play, making sure that areas like the set piece, so scrum and lineout, are functioning effectively and able to be good platforms for attack. But what I've what I've seen, and similar to what you're saying, is that actually it seems that this um, emphasis upon the set piece has diluted a little bit of the um, spice in their attack. The the quality of their backline um, runners able to get the shoulders through and then the offloads, which is just so good at doing, just hasn't seemed to have been as present. So that's something that I've noticed. How do yep. you think this game is going to be unfolding? Look, this game could be the slowest and most set-piece oriented game out of the four quarterfinals. Uh, there is a world where both teams just try and keep it in tight, don't want to chance their hands too much and throw the ball around. Once you get into these sort of do-or-die situations at quarterfinals, teams tend to lose that, um, I guess, the confidence to throw the ball around as much. I think Fiji will be wary of their performance against Portugal this week in that when they did go a, a bit hell for leather and throw the ball around, that their execution sort of fell away and they and they turned the ball over a fair bit. England hasn't been great in the attack in this World Cup in terms of scoring a lot of points through tries and and line breaks and that type of thing. But what they've been very good at is their set piece and taking the points when they're on offer. Mm. So if Fiji can keep England in their own half and not allow them to get penalties in sort of the 50 meter all in Fiji's own um, own half, then I think they're in with a chance. On the like flipping it around, if Fiji can crack open England's defense and, and can play that up tempo style, I think England might struggle to sort of try and contain some of the bigger outside backs. And that might be where Fiji can run over the top of them. Uh, yeah, it's going to be really tight. I don't really, I actually don't know how this one's going to go. My heart again says, my heart says Fiji, my head says England. I'd love yep. to see Fiji progress through to the uh, to the semis yep. in this tournament because I think the, the style of rugby they've played so far has just been so exciting to watch. Completely agreed. And one of the things that I really hope from Fiji is that they just send some of their absolutely massive loose forwards or even just as big inside backs just right up George Ford and Owen Farrell's 10-12 channels in defence. Because whilst George Ford is a... Um, a courageous professional rugby player, he'll put his body on the line and make the tackles. He's not big. He's not big. So he's going to get sat down a bit and he's going to have to often kind of have a soaking tackle rather than a dominant tackle. And you just know that it's not a modern rugby international series involving England if there's not a controversy around Owen Farrell's tackle technique. We haven't had one so far. It was in the pre-game warm-up matches that we had that, and we just need to see it because it's just it's not complete without Owen Farrell getting into trouble. So I'm really, really hoping that 
as a celebration, icing on the cake to him being England's all-time highest uh, point scorer, that he can get a yellow carded when it should be a red card, but somehow it doesn't get um, upgraded to it with the review process. And then there's weeks of speculation about whether or not um, he has again gotten away with something. So that's, that's my prediction. My prediction is a Fiji win with Owen Farrell receiving a yellow card and it goes for review and we all think it should be a red, but it doesn't get upgraded. So that's what I think is going to happen. <laughs> I think that's a, that's a key point that Fiji should be aware of and they should be sending as many big bodies down Owen, Farrell, Owen Farrell's channel as possible because when you put him under pressure and when you put him into, like put his back into a corner, that's when he does, his tackle technique does seem to slip. So he will be in favor of trying to stop these guys at every effort and he's prone to give away a penalty or a card. And if they can be 14 against, or 15 against 14, then we know what they can do in their back line, particularly a player like Owen Farrell having him off the field. That could be the turning point in this game. So... I would not be surprised if Owen Farrell is targeted in this game. Well, let's find out. And we have, like we said, some incredible matchups coming. So just to review, we have England versus Fiji, France versus South Africa, Wales versus Argentina, and Ireland versus New Zealand. So some incredible matches coming up on Sunday and Monday mornings Australian time. So get amongst it. And we want to quickly go through the tipping results. And Mitch, I'll hand this over to you for us to finish on for part two. Yep. So for those that are following along, Yep, let's uh, for those finish playing along at home on the tipping comp. Well done to Kakadu, who's currently in first place, four hundred and forty-three points there. Followed very closely by Felix Nine in second place on four hundred and five points. Um, Oliab is in third place on three hundred ninety-three. Fear JA 3 is in fourth place on three hundred eighty-one, and NA Wilson is in fifth place on three hundred and sixty-five. And what? How are you going in the tipping comp? We we actually couldn't find you. <laughs> last week when we were looking at the, um, the placings. What's your nick? I'm, your I'm not going to tell you because it's not great. Um, so I'm not going to tell you and I'll have to make sure I have a renewed focus on it because I was away. I missed a few tips. So I'm pretty low down within within a ladder. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> definitely not revealing what my username is. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Brilliant. Anything else we need to cover, mate? Or is that all good? No, that's it. We're done. Awesome. It's been a longer one. It has been. So thanks, everyone, for getting to this point in the podcast. We'll be back next week for... Yeah, you take over, and You keep going. Mate, I'm very keen. So next week, we are going to do, obviously, a quarterfinal re um, recap of what's happened within those matches so far. But we are also going to do a deep dive into the Wallabies campaign, um, get some thoughts and comments and analysis behind the whole thing. We've wanted to let a bit of the dust settle. So we're not just speaking from pure anger, emotion, frustration, disappointment, but actually have a bit of a clearer perspective about the decisions that RA have made over the last 12 months with the appointment of Eddie Jones, um, maybe some of the broader um, approaches that he has made with his team selection and coaching team as well. And then what we think about the position of Australian rugby moving forward. So there's a lot that we're going to be trying to cover there. And we really recommend that you tune in next week, um, either catch the video on YouTube or listen to it on any podcast platform. And don't forget, team, two other things that we didn't really mention earlier. Jump onto our Discord server to be a part of the best Australian rugby community going around. And 
If you like what we do, please consider supporting us with one-off or ongoing donations at ko-fi.com slash pickanddriverugby. So thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and can't wait to um, chat more rugby with you. <coughs> oh, dying. Mitch, moving forward and Lockie next week as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.